Wow. Uh, <clears throat> what a uh, Big Ten championship that was. Uh, welcome to Hangout in the Holy Land, episode 13. Uh, I am George Eisner of Land Grant Holy Land, joined by my co-host, uh, managing editor of Land Grant Holy Land, Gene Ross. Uh, Gene, how uh, you you had quite a weekend yourself, so I'm I'm curious uh, what your perspective was on uh, given everything that happened as it was unfolding in Indianapolis. Uh, how how did you how did you ta- take it? Yeah, so I didn't get to watch in real time because I had a, a COVID-safe wedding to attend. But, you know, as we all saw, clearly it, it went exactly according to plan. Not, nothing was weird about it. Uh, it was exactly as we predicted. Ohio State uh, dominated from start to finish. And, uh, yeah, it was great. And uh, I'm, out, I'm now getting reports that that is not actually what happened. And it was uh, a very, very weird, <laughs> very weird game. And it was not at all as we expected. Well, I think I think a lot of people and we and we talked about it a bit last week. People thought it was going to be kind of a funky game. Um, we were obviously previewing the game last week before the uh, news broke later in the week that Ohio State was dealing with ongoing COVID problems uh, and that there were going to be some significant players that missed the game that ultimately ended up inc- including Chris Olave and Baron Browning. I believe Jackson Smith and the Jigba as well. Uh, Drew Chrisman and uh, a few other key players. So I think they were missing somewhere around 20 total players on the roster. So not a ton of starters, but definitely some key players that uh, their absences were definitely felt in a few different areas. Uh, the linebackers had to get a little bit more creative, um, but thankfully, or well, I don't know if thankfully is the right word, but Browning's absence did give way to more playing time for Hilliard, who ended up playing arguably as the defensive MVP for the team and made several of the most critical plays in the game. Uh, and then conversely, Olave's presence was obviously, um, you know, very well felt in the offense. I think there may have been somewhat of a debate as the season has gone on as to whether, you know, Garrett Wilson has surpassed Olave in terms of, uh, you know, just the, the receiver pecking order or who's really the more talented of the two. I personally always felt it was Olave, and I think that that was pretty evident based on this past uh, this uh, this past game on Saturday. They Wilson was having a little bit of trouble dealing with the attention of being the number one option, and um, we had to see some other players such as Julian Fleming step up to kind of pick up the slack in Olave's absence. So definitely uh, was not the game that we necessarily previewed last week and the absences took a big toll. They only ended up winning 22 to 10, so not even a full two touchdown uh, lead to close that one out. But it was a it was a game that was definitely full of surprises. And uh, I'm sure, you know, based on the fact that you had to take in a lot of it by not necessarily getting to, to witness it. I'm sure that when you back went back and watched later, there were definitely a lot of things that surprised you when you looked at the tape. Yeah, it's definitely odd to check Twitter during an Ohio State game and just see a bunch of people yelling at them to run the ball when they have Justin Fields on their roster. But uh, that was exactly what happened on Saturday. It was uh, an odd game. Justin Fields was clearly off. They they're clearly feeling the absence of Olave, like you said. Um, it, it felt like a lot of that was game plan oriented. It felt like Ryan Day was really trying to get Garrett Wilson involved early and often, and it just wasn't working out. Northwestern was clearly keying in on Garrett Wilson, knowing that he's there. He was going to be their top priority without uh, Olave on the field. And on the defensive side of the ball, like you say, you know, Justin Hilliard was awesome. He had a key interception in the end zone. He had a fumble recovery. He was probably their best defensive player. 
And uh, even on top of that, on top of the COVID guys missing, uh, they were also missing Marcus Hooker, who was a game time decision with, I'm assuming, an injury because he wouldn't be game time with COVID issues. And then uh, Ronnie Hickman was a late scratch as well. So they were down to really just Josh Proctor at safety, which got um, freshman Lathan Ransom some playing time. And he looked he looked pretty good in his limited time. He had the game ending pass breakup on Northwestern's final drive. And so, you know, Ohio State was forced to go deep in its depth chart for uh, with their biggest game of the year to that point. And uh, the guys were able to get it done. Obviously, Trey Sermon turned into some crazy hybrid of Eddie George and Ezekiel Elliott and had one of the, the craziest games for a running back that I can remember in college football, just absolutely putting the team on his back with 331 rushing yards, which was both the Big Ten championship game record and Ohio State's program record. So that was, that was pretty impressive to see. You know, we've been kind of hard on Trey Sermon all year. He hasn't been... He hasn't looked great to that point. He hasn't been hitting the hole. He hasn't been running as hard. He hasn't been breaking tackles. And he just completely flipped the script on Saturday. He was incredible. It's, it seemed like they, he couldn't be tackled on the first go. I saw there was a stat today where it was like most most rushing yards in all the championship games over the weekend. And it was number one was Trey Sermon with 330. And then number two was Trey Sermon after contact with like 206. <sighs> ahead, of, ahead of even Najee Harris at Bama. So Trey Sermon had himself one hell of a game. Hats off to him for really putting the team on his back. And uh yeah, it was odd to see, you know, Ohio State become a run-first offense, but that's what they needed to become in the second half with how the passing game looked, and they were able to get it done. And it maybe, you know, maybe it's a feather in the cap heading into the playoff now that maybe they could be more two-dimensional on offense and not have to go as air raid. They could really put in a good mix of run and pass if Trey Sermon could even get, you know, even marginally do what he did on Saturday against Northwestern against Clemson. It'll be a, a huge boost for the offense. Uh, it's it was one of the most inexplicable performances I think I've ever seen from a running back, and I know I said the same thing or something similar about Justin Fields against Indiana, but that was inexplicable in terms of someone that's really good playing far below what you know their ability is. This was inexplicable in the sense that in the beginning of the season, we both thought I, I maybe I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but I certainly based on the eye test thought Trey Sermon was washed. Uh, he had the knee injury that ended his time at Oklahoma last year. And in the first, at least through the first three games of Ohio State season, it very much looked like uh, he had significantly reduced explosiveness from what he had when he was playing in the Big 12. And uh, Master Teague was consistently more impressive. And it, it was just really difficult to pick out anything that Sermon was doing well as a running back that would have merited the two of them splitting touches. Or, you know, even, you know, giving Sermon a significant share of carries uh, if you were to work out an uneven split between him and Teague. Uh, He got better every game this year, a little bit better, I think, as the season went along. I still didn't really think that they were going to get any, you know, really great performances out of him. I remember he had a nice run. I think it was at the end of the Rutgers game. And I think he got hurt towards the end of it. And I was just sort of worried at that point, like, is this going to be the unfortunate narrative for him at the end of his college career is that he keeps having all these nagging injuries that keep him from consistently getting on the field. He had a great game against Michigan State. I was a little bit concerned that Fields, I think, almost beat him into the end zone when he had that last block that he threw at the end of the touchdown run Sermon had. Um, And then even in the first quarter of the game, uh, on Saturday, Teague was still getting the carries. And Teague actually had a very, very nice run at the end of the first quarter that went for about 15 or so yards that made me think, you know, I, I wonder if they're going – it probably went for even more of that, but I thought this was the game that 
we're finally going to see the the running game really, you know, make its presence felt. And I thought they were going to make it felt through Teague based on that run that he had in the first quarter. Uh, and for them to have that game against one of the top rushing defenses in the country against Northwestern uh, would be incredibly um, uplifting for not only the team, but also Ohio State fans heading into the college football playoff. And, I mean, Sermon, I – you know, I've I've done a lot of setting the table to get to this point, but I mean, 331 yards against Northwestern's rushing defense in the title game. I I was at the Wisconsin Ohio State game in 2014, and when they won 59 nothing, and Zeke went for I think 220 against Wisconsin, and I I was like that might that's probably going to be the best championship rushing performance I ever see from an Ohio State running back, and. Uh, of course, then he followed it up with something like 240 against Oregon the next month. And uh, then we saw Trey Sermon last Saturday. And uh, all, he looked incredibly shifty. He looked very uh, – he didn't necessarily look like he had the top-end speed to you know house a lot of the big runs that he had. But he looked great. He looked incredibly well-rounded, and he looked like exactly the kind of versatile threat Ohio State is going to need at running back if they're going to beat Clemson and make significant noise in the college football playoff. Absolutely. And you can't, you can't talk about the run game, obviously, without talking about the offensive line. I thought those dudes played maybe their best game of the season against Northwestern, especially in the run blocking. The, those dudes, I, somebody tweeted, it looked like they were shoveling snow out there. They were literally just, <laughs> just five yards of separation off the, off the blocks. They're huge gaping holes for Sermon. And he, Sermon did, to his credit, make a lot of his own plays. He was breaking tackles and, and making more out of, out of less. But the, the line was incredible uh, all day. I, Harry Miller obviously had the early hold that took a touchdown off the board that maybe changed the the narrative of the game from there. But other than that one mistake, they were brilliant, all five guys. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's weird that at the end of the season now, I'm almost more concerned about Ohio State's passing game than I am about their running game. I think their running game will be fine with the way these guys are blocking. And if Trey Sermon could even be half as good as he was against Northwestern moving forward. But this is, this is two games now for Justin Fields this year where against the best defense they've played, he's struggled. He only threw for... 114 yards against Northwestern with no touchdowns and two picks. It's the first time as Ohio State's quarterback that he hasn't thrown a touchdown pass in a game. And he he looks straight up not good. Like he did not have a good game. He was missing open throws. He was I think a lot of it is comes down to scheme. I think Ryan Day try is trying to be too aggressive in some spots where at almost every pass play it seems like Ohio State's trying to hit the deep bomb when they have, you know, guys like Rutgard or even the, the slot receiver whoever is underneath for like 6 or 7 yards. And they're always going for like the 25, 30 yard touchdown pass every time. And it's, it seems like Fields is kind of staring down his main option on throws. And I think, you know, obviously his picks uh, could kind of be explained. The, the one pick to Garrett Wilson in the end zone where the guy made like an Odell Beckham catch, there's really nothing you could do about that. The, the corner made a brilliant play and the ball might have been a little underthrown, but like that ball like nine times out of ten does not get caught that was a very good play by the northwestern corner and then the other one was clearly some miscommunication between uh fields and jamison williams and you know this is the kind of thing what that happens when you've thrown to two receivers all season and now you one of them is out and so jamison williams is kind of filling in the olave role and they were clearly clearly a misstep there it was clearly supposed to be a, a breaking route that was back and he kept running straight and fields through to nobody in particular and the corner was there to pick it off so 
the picks you can understand they weren't all on fields, but at the same time, you know, his his throws weren't crisp. He wasn't his usual self. He wasn't really running a lot. He had some some nice runs, but there's a lot of times where he was just kind of standing back there in the pocket, staring down a guy, waiting for him to get open. And on a lot of those throws, he has the guy underneath for a couple yards or just take off and run with it. And those are the kind of reads he's going to have to make against Clemson if they're going to consistently move the ball. You cannot, every pass play can't be a long developing like play over the middle, over the sideline. Like you can't do that every play, especially if teams are going to send pressure, which obviously Clemson is going to with what they've seen on film, where if you send pressure to Ohio State, they they struggle with it. And it's because they're they're trying to hit these big plays for seemingly no reason. And like when they, once Ohio State started playing more conservatively, they started moving the ball. They started running it. They started throwing the shorter passes. And it worked a lot better, and I think that's the kind of offense they're going to have to go to against Clemson. You could you could run these these long developing plays once in a while, but that that can't be your entire passing offense. Yeah, I think you set the table well for what this team's biggest issue is going to be going into the Clemson game. But I do want to circle back to the the praise you gave to the offensive line just to say this. Um, I think the the most noticeable difference for me. It wasn't necessarily something I would have picked up on just watching the game the first time just because I try to, you know, just take in naturally what's happening and enjoy the the game as it unfolds. But, you know, when you go back and you rewatch and you're, you know, specifically looking at different uh, players and their assignments and how well they, they executed them. Uh, it, it's important to remember that in the Michigan State game, uh, Harry Miller was playing center for this team, and uh, it was a very uh, it, it compromised the entire offense. Not you know as if it was an intentional tank job from Harry Miller or that he's you know absolutely horrible or anything, but um, it you know the erratic snaps and just the the lack of familiarity on the interior of the line created, you know, a lot of imbalance uh, in that Michigan state game. And they were still able to do very well. Uh, the biggest difference for me in the game last weekend was having Josh Myers back. And I need to, I want to watch the game a third time because I really want to get a better sense of how guys like Wyatt Davis did. But after one rewatch, I mean, Josh Myers was just a it was it was night and day from the the performance that Ohio State had against Michigan State. He was constantly in the right spot, making sure that guys knew where their assignments were, getting forward momentum upfield, moving guys out of you know his interior part of the the line. He was he he's been so great the last two seasons, including this one. And uh, his presence, having him back uh, on Saturday, I think really was what the biggest difference was for the line having the kind of success that they did. So uh, we're really glad to see you back, Josh Myers. And uh, don't try try not to get COVID again anytime soon, but at least not within the next month. Um, But regarding what you were saying with – oh, one one other thing I want to make. I I know that – you know, you want to give credit all five guys. I Harry, I don't have Harry Miller out of the doghouse yet. That that penalty that he committed in the in on the first drive of the game was so egregiously bad. It was one of the worst holding penalties I've ever seen. He was a pulling guard and he grabbed a defensive tackle that was already running towards the other sideline and basically hugged him from his back. I've never seen a a, a player get held. When the person, when the the person being held in question already has their back to the, the the offensive lineman, it was baffling, and it was a drive killer. And then later on in the game, he got whistled for an ineligible man downfield, which the team declined because there was another offensive penalty on the play that uh, ended up taking away more significant yardage. 
but he committed multiple penalties and he's also got this really really annoying tell there's there's if you're if you've played offensive line or you've played football for any you know dedicated amount of time you know there's holding on every play it's just a matter of whether it gets called or not the problem with Harry Miller is that when he does it he has a really bad habit of when he lets go of you know putting his arms up in the air like you know he's he's you know, like hands up, don't shoot or something like it. it, He, he literally just puts his arms up in the air. Like I didn't do it. And, you know, tries to feign ignorance. Like he knows he didn't just commit holding. And, you know, when you're a ref, that's, that's a very big red herring for, if you're even wondering if you saw a penalty on the play, a player does that. You just throw the flag out right then and there. So I, this team, you're only as good as your weakest, weakest link. And, you know, last year Ohio State had one of the best offensive lines I've ever seen, uh, just relative to the Buckeyes. And I was really hoping, just based on the fact that Munford and Myers and Davis were all back this year, that this team was only going to grow from that. And while Petit Frere's been great at right tackle, Miller has just not stepped up and had a good game, I think, in any of these games yet this year. And going into the playoff, I, I, I really worry how that you know, could end up affecting the team in a key moment. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, he's definitely struggled this year. He's definitely been the weakest of the five up front. I do think he's gotten better since earlier in the year. We saw, you know, against, I think it was Nebraska early in the first game, but I could be wrong. But there was one game in particular where, like, it just seemed like every time the other team was getting pressure, it was in that left guard spot. And then you'd start taking, you know, Josh Morris has to start coming over and help, and now his guy's beating him. And so it, it does affect the rest of the offensive line. But I do think he's gotten better. Obviously, the penalties have to stop. Like you said, his first holding was egregious. Justin Fields is already way ahead of the play. There's no reason for it to happen. It took a touchdown off the board that really changed the tone of the game from there at least in the first two quarters and then uh yeah so that that's obviously something you gotta look forward look look out for moving forward um luckily he's on the inside so it's not like you're really blitzing guys there mostly unless it's like a stunt or a linebacker coming in so i mean he hasn't really given up a ton of pressure since early in the year but the the penalties are definitely an issue and against a team like clemson that's going to attack your weak spots that that's a spot that i'm sure they're looking at in film that i'm sure they're if they're sending some different blitz packages they might be coming after that left guard spot well and that and that brings me into you know what you were talking about with fields and what i think the biggest issue is going to be for this team against clemson is that we watching, you know, prepping for the Northwestern game last week, I think one of the things that you pointed out was that, you know, they're pretty they're pretty rigid in terms of staying true to form. They're not they they weren't a team that was gonna send, you know, a ton of pressure at you. You know, when they do blitz, it wasn't gonna be anything like insanely sophisticated. But I I, I wonder how much they were holding, you know, for their bigger games based on what we saw uh, Saturday or at least just, you know, how, you know, how brilliant the game planning is on Pat Fitzgerald's end. Because if they hadn't, if that was really their MO that they hadn't been doing that the whole season going into the championship, that was not what happened on Saturday because we saw... I mean, multiple plays where Northwestern was sending six, seven guys and then dropping, you know, defensive defensive ends or any sort of interior defensive lineman into shallow coverage while they were bringing pressure from the linebackers or the outside secondary. They were sending a lot of really like a lot more sophisticated blitz packages than you're used to seeing from a Big Ten team. A lot of stuff that would remind you of the stuff that you saw in the Indiana game that uh, gave Justin Fields some trouble. And that is exactly what Clemson loves to do. And if they're dialing up those stunt blitzes constantly against Ohio State in the in the 
uh, college football playoff. And, uh, you know, you don't have all five offensive linemen that are in tune with each other in terms of, you know, making the reads and, and making sure that they've got their assignments checked off correctly. And then you add on top of it a quarterback that is not comfortable right now dealing with that kind of pressure in fields on top of, you know, having that issue of thinking that you make every throw every time. And it, it came up again in the, in the game on Saturday where thankfully it fell incomplete. But I believe it might have been early. It was either early in the second quarter or it might have been in the third when Fields got kind of tied up almost getting sacked near the line of scrimmage and he kind of just it it almost looked like a shovel pass but he kind of just flung it loosely towards the sideline hoping it would get to his defender in time and and thankfully it just fell to the turf but one of the northwestern defenders almost picked it off for what would have been you know a, one another extremely unsightly interception from fields this season so there's there's a lot of issues i i, I think that that core problem is going to be the biggest barrier to Ohio State's success against Clemson uh, in the playoff is going to be their ability to handle those stunt blitzes and then, you know, Fields reaction to them subsequently. Based on what we've seen, they've got a lot of work to do in the next week and a half to make sure that they're ready for that because the two games in which it's come up, uh, they they have not been ready and Fields' performance has suffered uh, sharply as a result. Yeah, and you know, the book is kind of out on Ohio State and Justin Fields right now. And obviously, you know, we'll do another podcast specifically breaking down the Clemson game, but just like, just in general, uh, Ohio State's play calling, I thought on Saturday, was not good. I think Ryan Day probably called his worst game at Ohio State against Northwestern. And, you know, I love Ryan Day, he's a great coach, but I feel like, you know, the. His his idea of aggression is just these deep balls where I think it would be equally aggressive to run it on like third down instead of trying to pick it up in the air every single time. You know, it seemed like every time Ohio State ran the ball on Saturday and didn't on first down, especially if they didn't get like at least four yards, he scrapped the run for like the rest of the drive and then they'd throw their throw and half the balls were falling incomplete because Justin Fields is off. And, you know, he's he's clearly struggled with pressure. And, you know, to, to beat that, if teams are going to blitz, they're going to keep blitzing you because they know you can't handle it. Run the ball. If you're running right at them and you, they can't stop you like Northwestern did, if you're running past the linebackers in the backfield and your running backs in the open space because there's no one there now because they all blitzed, that's how you beat the blitz. Justin Fields, too. Justin Fields is going to have to start running. I know he hasn't wanted to do it in the regular season to stay healthy, but this is this is the big leagues now. Now is the time where he should be taken off. If Justin Fields, like, Justin Fields has 12 to 15 carries against Clemson, I guarantee that's better than him just standing back there in the pocket looking for someone to get open in the backfield against Clemson secondary. Uh, I think the play calling has to be better. I think they have to adjust to what the defense is giving them. They've seemed like, at least until halftime, you know, like we saw against Northwestern, they really weren't keen on changing their game plan. The passing game clearly wasn't working without Chris Olave out there, and they were just still throw, throw, throw all first half, and it wasn't working. They didn't. That was the first time all year Ohio State didn't score a touchdown in the first half. And so you have to be you have to be willing to change your game plan to what's working, and you know the run game was working, and so they went to it in the second half, and it was brilliant. And that's the kind of thing they're going to have to do. They're going to have to adjust on the fly, and the, every ball can't be a deep ball. You have to throw the short passes. You have to run the ball, because that's how you break the defense up a little bit. If they're blitzing every play, you can't be calling 25-yard routes. It's just not going to work. You're not the best offensive lines can't block against the blitz for that long. The most encouraging thing for me last year, watching Day in his first year as head coach, was his contextual play calling was it was absolutely brilliant. There were so many games last year where he was run he was running maybe you know three, four, five setup plays in the first half 
that end up setting up one play call that happens in the middle of the third quarter on some unassuming down, and it ends up directly leading to a touchdown for Ohio State. You go back and watch the Indiana game from last year, not this year, but there were so many different instances where Ohio State was, you know, they that offensive line last year gave them so much movement up front that whenever they were going to play action, it was absolutely devastating to every defense that they faced because it was giving them the impossible conundrum of, do I get ready to get mauled by this enormous offensive line in front of me and hopefully tackle the guy that's presumably going to be the starting running back for the Baltimore Ravens going forward? Um, or do I drop back in coverage and try to defend a pass from Justin Fields to Chris Olave or you know whoever else may be? Uh, running behind the secondary in that given moment. But those play actions were key towards setting up a lot of those deep balls that they had success with last year, or even just attacking the, um, you know, beyond the shallow parts of the field. Uh, So they they did a really good job last year um, setting themselves up to succeed on those plays that they're not necessarily having as much success with this season. And I think a big part of that can be credited to the fact that they didn't have their run game worked out very well. Um, One of the reasons they had so much scoring success against Nebraska was because they were still using a lot of those play action plays from the offense last year. And the, the, I guess the news hadn't kind of been out yet that Ohio State's running game was still kind of needing to restore itself to the state that it had been in last year. The good news coming off of this game is that Trey Sermon very much just created a a running game in this offense where you have to pay attention and respect it, which wasn't necessarily something they've had in the other games this season. And I think if Ryan Day is a play caller now that he has that, if he's able to kind of tailor their game plan around the fact that they can succeed running the ball with Sermon, um, which I don't think is necessarily far-fetched given Northwestern's running defense, at least the running defense I think is probably comparable to what Clemson has. Um, they, If they commit to doing that, I think that it's going to open up a lot of other things on top of you know getting Olave back um, is, is significantly going to help. But – that that I think is going to be the key to seeing all of this open up is that now that the running game's back, let's see how much that works towards opening up the rest of the playbook and kind of engineering success on a lot of these other plays uh, for the rest of the offense. So it'll be interesting to see. I, I certainly wasn't encouraged by the fact that, at least with the passing game, there are only four receivers um, on Ohio State's roster that made catches in the Big Ten Championship, and two of them were running backs. Um, so I know Olave was missing, but obviously we know with the the talent, the immense talent, th- that receiver room might be the most talented position group uh, in the entire uh, on the entire team. So you you would hope that with that level of of depth and talent there, that they would be able to get a little bit more out of that uh, in an emergency situation where they don't have their top guy. So uh, it definitely will fall on day to call a better game against Clemson. I think that the tools are a little bit more there now than they have been in, in uh, earlier games this season where he can kind of call a more successful game. But it we it will be nice, you know, now that we're out of the, the sort of nonsense game, so to speak, if we do see Fields start to run a little bit more, which he did do in the Big Ten Championship. But, you know, it is, it is put up or shut up time. You know, whatever you've got in the playbook, 
you, you can't be holding it for the next game anymore. You really got to go all out and, uh, you know, go out and try to win these games. And uh, I'm, I'm hopeful we're going to see it. And I think the tools are there for them to succeed. But obviously it hasn't been the most encouraging se- season from a play calling standpoint. So we will, uh, we'll just have to see if uh, Day rises to the challenge against uh, his formidable foe, Dabo Swinney. Yeah, and like you said, you know, the the run game sets up the play action, which Ohio State did so well last year. So it is good that Ohio State has this game on film at the end of the year because now Clemson has to prepare for the ground game. Before this week, Clemson could have been like, all right, we could let Ohio State beat us on the ground, but we're just going to shut down Justin Fields in the passing game. Now they can't do that. Northwestern is a good running defense. They're obviously not as good of a a total defense as Clemson. At least, I mean, on paper they are, but player-wise, talent-wise, they're definitely not. But, um... Yeah, now they've got to commit to both. They've got a they've got a two dimensional offense to work around. They've got a game plan for everything. You know, you've got a mobile quarterback, a good air attack, a good running attack. So it's going to be going to be tough for the Clemson defense to stop this Ohio State offense if everything's clicking. And they just got to spread the ball. Ohio State has talent all over the place, and they can't be looking at two receivers all game. Get the ball to Jeremy Rucker. Get the ball to Luke Farrell. Get it to Jackson Smith and Jigba if he's available for that game. Hopefully, he is. Um, and all that stuff. Also, just one other note on the offensive play calling. I never want to see a backwards pass from this Ohio State offense ever again. They ran it twice in the Big Ten Championship. Obviously, one of them was going to be a double pass. It, it like almost uh, it was a fumble. It hit the ground. It, they had to recover it. And the other one like almost got pick sixed. So I, I never want to see Ohio State run that again. Leave the cute plays to the Northwesterns and Rutgers of the world. You have enough athletes to run a real offense. We don't need to be doing these crazy backwards double pass to the wide receiver crap. That's that's not Ohio State. I know it's fun, and, and if you need a big play in, in a key spot and maybe go for it but that is Ohio State has better athletes to not have to do that just run the ball throw the ball forward you'll be fine yeah when I spent the season actively wondering if Ohio State was you know withholding parts of its playbook that certainly wasn't what I had in mind in terms of what I wanted to see in the championship so I, I agree I could do without ever seeing uh, Julian Fleming trying to catch a pass five yards behind Justin Fields ever again uh, from the other sideline Anyway, um, that's been a lot <laughs> um, on what was an extremely ugly but you know somewhat uh, predictable football game that Ohio State ultimately won. And uh, I think most people felt good about their odds of getting into the playoff as long as they won, regardless of what other wacky extracurricular stuff happened in college football. But there were, you know, some there were some interesting things that happened on Saturday, and then uh, we all woke up Sunday morning, and I think most of us were uh, delighted to see Ohio State slotting in at three. Personally, I could have seen them at four, um, you know, and you know, not totally, or I don't know, I don't know what the right way to say is, but I guess not, you know looking at Notre Dame losing to Clemson with Lawrence as, you know, blowing up their season. And I guess it doesn't blow up their season if they drop the four, but I could have seen them staying at three and not been upset about it. But Ohio State made it in. Um, and, then, and then all the other rankings came out. And uh, pe- people had a lot of things to say about them for sure. Um, the rankings have kind of been, not kind of, they've been extremely bizarre uh, since they started getting released a few weeks ago. And I think the the general narrative around these was that uh, you know it, it it's all going to work out. Um, you know they're kind of just doing these for ratings, and then you know we'll get the more serious college football playoff rankings. Uh, you know when it comes time to actually decide the teams, 
And then these things came out on Sunday, and uh, I, I haven't heard a single person say a nice thing about them yet. Yeah, th- this year's this year's committee did probably the worst job of any that I've seen to this point. I mean, the the rankings they they got lucky that they got like the easiest four ever. Like, I, pretty much everyone in the world knew exactly what the final four was going to look like just based on you know the rest of the country. I mean, there's there's realistically there was one really good team in college football in Alabama, and then everyone else, and like the everyone else was a clearly the three best after Alabama were Clemson, Ohio State, and Notre Dame, and there was really not much of a discussion for anyone else. But I mean, some of the rankings this year were just atrocious. Florida and Georgia were way too high. Even Oklahoma was way too high. And Iowa State before that, Cincinnati got absolutely no respect. Uh, and I know they're a group of five team, but they went undefeated. They won their conference. They, they were probably one of the best defenses of the country against like some of the better opponents that like a, a team of that caliber has played. And so I, I just think, you know, they, they it seemed like they barely even watched the games. Like Florida still being ranked seven after losing to Alabama was the biggest joke in the world. And I, while I think that the final four is the correct final four, I just think like they didn't even have to like the end. They didn't have to make that decision. There was no debate over what the four was going to be. They just lucked into the, the four best teams remaining the four best teams throughout the season, which you rarely ever see. Usually there's some debate at the end, but like I wasn't one of these people pining for Texas A&M to make it after losing by 30 to Alabama. I think if you lose by four scores to anyone at any point in the year, you're pretty much out, especially if you don't play in your own conference championship. So I don't think they really had an argument. And after that, they clearly didn't value Cincinnati, and they were really the only other team that had any sort of resume for the Final Four. And so, yeah, I think that's the right Final Four, but I just think the committee did a really terrible job overall this year. I think they kind of just ranked team based ranked teams based on talent and with nothing to do with what was on the field. You saw two and three lost teams up in the top of the rankings over teams like Indiana and Northwestern that had good seasons. And so I just, you know, they 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 really tanked it this year and I'm glad we still get the four best teams in the playoff and they didn't blow it that hard, but it, it was just ugly throughout the whole year. I, I thought it was pretty funny that the biggest like selling point for AM making it in over Ohio State was oh they look at them they've won seven SEC games in a row and it's just you know that oh my god that, that continued incestuous appreciation for the SEC that just keeps rearing his ugly head every year and I mean <laughs> you're really gonna brag about winning seven SEC games in a row in a year where the SEC became the Big 12 and everyone just forgot how to play defense like it's not that's not a selling point I, I, I so fine you want you want to put am5 go ahead I don't care honestly like the five through six thing is it's the it's a consolation trophy that makes you feel worse because it doesn't mean anything except that you were one or two spots out of playing the games that actually matter. So I cannot, I, I, they've never really mattered to me before, so I usually could always care less who ends up there. You want to put A&M there, fine. Oklahoma is not the sixth best college football team as of this podcast. They're not. And it is, I don't, it's so insulting every year that they just get the benefit of the doubt when and people say oh their defense got better this year no it did their defense never gets better any year they they lost to kansas state they they just they don't deserve to be six you want to leave florida there because they played alabama close and not move up cincinnati who's undefeated and actually good fine i can get that you don't want to put Coastal Carolina in there who's undefeated and actually good, and you want to leave them outside of the top 10? I don't know if I agree with leaving a team that good that's won 11 games outside of the top 10, but if you don't want to put them in you know, one of the five, six spots, that's fine. But 
it it just makes my stomach crawl that in I, I think other than UCF in you know their infamous year where they declared themselves national champion, I don't know if there's a non-power five team that's had a better year than Cincinnati had this year. And I think in a normal year where if they had gotten to play a full slate, I think that they would have had an, an ex, a much more compelling case for making the playoff than unfortunately they ended up with. But I still think that they absolutely deserve to be recognized as one of the five or six best teams. And it would have gone a very long way towards encouraging non-Power 5 teams that the playoff is within reach for you. But now we're in a situation where they couldn't even crack the top seven. They put Florida, Oklahoma, and A&M in front in the final rankings before the actual playoff. And they bumped them up one spot ahead of Georgia. Woohoo. And now I'm just left wondering if we're ever going to see any power. I don't know what a power, a non-Power 5 team has to do to make the playoff. And I don't know if it's ever going to happen. I think the committee proved this year that we will never see a group of five make the playoffs until it's ultimately expanded. You know, I've always said my long my long thing in on expansion has been, you know, all five Power 5 conferences. Champion gets an auto bid. You get the number one group of five team, and then you have two at large. I think that's the best way to do an eight-team playoff. But yeah, I don't think a group of five is ever going to make it. Honestly, my biggest gripe with the rankings is Indiana. Indiana, I think, I'm pretty sure in the AP poll, Indiana's seven. And what has Indiana done to not be ranked a top 10 team? They lost to Ohio State as their only loss by seven. And then they beat everyone else on their schedule, including Wisconsin, including a couple of decent teams. And a lot of it they did without their starting quarterback. I don't know what Indiana has done to not be a top 10 team, but that team is very good. And they just got completely thrown out of the box the second they lost to Ohio State. Well, I don't know how many how many games have they played without Penix because I know Penix got hurt towards the end of their game after Ohio State, so that would have been that was two, the Maryland. Maybe game. they played two or three. Yeah, so they played the Maryland game, and he played. I think he played most of it before he got hurt, and then they had the Wisconsin game, and they and they won. They beat Wisconsin at Wisconsin, so that's a good win. Um, I I wonder how much of that ranking has it just baked into the cake that Penix is injured. I don't know if that's necessarily a fair slight to make against a team. I think if Ohio State had had to deal with that in 2014, that they probably would have been in jeopardy for making the playoff even after Cardale went off in the Big Ten Championship. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Indiana, I think definitely. I And I wondered this last year because Penix looked really great in his first few games for Indiana last season before he ultimately – I think that they uh, – for the red shirt rule, they decided to bench him after their first four games, but he, he still looked great. Um, you could kind of get a sense that maybe the tide was shifting. We didn't know if it was going to go all the way there. I think a lot of people thought Tom Allen was a good coach and, you know, Indiana was okay, but they were very much still within that nine win Indiana meme. Uh, and now that's, you know, I, I think that they've definitely established themselves in terms of, you know, big 10 East discussion going forward after this season, a big part of that is the demise of Penn State and Michigan. Um, and unfortunately, I think in both of those – in Penn State, I think maybe it's a little bit less pronounced. It'll be interesting to see what happens with James Franklin. Um, Michigan, obviously, there's there's some signs of decay there that they're going to need to address in-house. But I think with those yeah, I mean, two have, prominent they have powers assistant falling, coaches. They have assistant coaches like praising Ohio State's playoff spot and then having to like – put his Twitter on private because he's getting bullied by his own fan base. So they've got, they've got some issues going on up there. 
Yeah, they definitely do. But I, uh, yeah, I think that after you get past Ohio State now, if you want to slide Indiana into that Big Ten East discussion with uh, Michigan and uh, and uh, Penn State, I think if you want to say that they've maybe taken over the spot that Michigan State occupied while Mark D'Antonio was there, I think that's probably a fitting analogy for that. I'm not going to say Tom Allen is the new Mark D'Antonio or anything. But uh, I do like what I saw out of Indiana this year. I don't know if they're quite a top 10 team, but uh, they certainly looked like it when they played Ohio State, uh, to be fair, though. Yeah, I think that's an apt comparison. They're one of those teams that, you know, they're going to have a solid year. They might knock off one of the big dogs in, a, in an upset game during the year, but they're not going to they're probably not going to compete for the Big Ten East all that often, especially if Penn State and Michigan can get back to form. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, playoff is what it is. Uh, Ohio State fans get their rematch with Clemson. Uh, obviously college football wanted that. Everyone wanted that. So we'll see that in a few weeks and, uh, the winner gets to play, you know, Alabama because there's, I don't think there's a chance in hell that Notre Dame even makes that game competitive. And the Vegas, prize. the Vegas line says it because Alabama is a 20 point favorite in that game. Yep. Uh, I remember, uh, being a freshman in college and, uh, I remember that I, uh, that was in 2012. So I guess the national championship would have been like, you know, early January 2013. And that was Alabama, Notre Dame. And that was, you know, that was the year of Manti Teo's Heisman run. And, you know, they they couldn't gas up Notre Dame enough that year. They were like, oh, they I remember ESPN, like every other segment would run this story about how they had like the greatest goal line defense in college football history. And then the national championship game happened and Eddie Lacy just absolutely ran them out of the building. It wasn't it was like it, it, it was a it was comparable to Ohio State, Florida in 2007. It was like a 40s. Uh, the final score was like Alabama in the 40s and Notre Dame was like in the 10s. It wasn't even close. Um, Alabama, like you said earlier, I mean, it's like there's they're in kind of their own tier this year and then there's the other guys. Um, it really does feel like at this point that this whole thing is just hurtling towards who gets to be the team that loses to Bama. Um, I'm not optimistic it's going to be to Ohio State, but we'll get into that in our preview show for the Clemson game. But, yeah, I, I do very much think Alabama is going to beat the doors off of Notre Dame, who kind of got proven to be fool's gold against Clemson, as you saw, uh, once they got Trevor Lawrence back for their rematch. And, uh, yeah, it'll be we'll, – we'll talk about how Clemson-Ohio State will probably unfold uh, later on. But, yeah, I, uh, I wouldn't expect anything too shocking out of that Alabama-Notre Dame game. I think lightning definitely strikes lice tw- – eh, lightning strikes twice – even if it strikes something like seven years later and uh, the fighting Irish are going to get the pants beaten off them all the way back to South Bend. Yeah, and, and one last thing before we sign off here. If you had a Heisman vote, who are you taking? And I, I, I think at this point Justin Fields is totally off the ballot. I don't even think he's going to be a finalist. <laughs> I'm surprised you even mentioned his name. Yeah, he's, he's off the ballot. Uh, so my thing is I this award, I it, it's becoming – very every year it just becomes a quarterback award more and more and i hate seeing that and i know that you know we had a handful of running backs in the last decade that you know won them but it 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 just very much every year uh to me just feels like it's becoming an award for who has the quarterback that you know got to throw the most uh not even who was the best one just who had the most opportunities to throw the football and plays in a power five conference Correct, but not um, not who not who's going to win it. Who would you vote for if you had a Heisman vote? Well, so that and that that's what I'm getting to. I'm always about picking the fun candidates if if the the choice is there. Uh, 
I turned on the game two weeks ago just to start up my college football Saturday, and the first thing that came on was Alabama-Arkansas. And the first play that I saw that day, as soon as I turned my TV on, was Devonta Smith housing a punt return in a game that at the time was 3-3 three to three in the early part of the second quarter. And uh, that completely ripped the momentum open for Alabama, and they proceeded to blow the doors off of Arkansas after that. I, you know, I think Mac Jones has a ton of talent around him and hasn't, you know, so he's kind of gotten to be the beneficiary of that. Uh, Devonta Smith is unreal, man. He might like, they've had so many unbelievable receivers that have played at Bama and his, the season he's had this year has just been, it's been exemplary. So I'm, I'm always about giving it to the fun candidates. Smith has a candidacy. I would give it to him. Unfortunately, I think Mac Jones is going to win. I would honestly rather see Trevor Lawrence win it than Mac Jones just because Lawrence, I think, is one of the best college football quarterbacks I've watched in my lifetime. And I think that he, you know, I I, I would like to see him get that just – I know saying that he deserves it in recognition of that isn't, you know, accurate, but I I, I think that it – I think that he's a guy that based on the season he's had – you can make the argument he deserves to win it over Mac Jones. But if I had a vote, it would be going to Devonta Smith. Well, if we're picking the most fun candidate, the ob- the obvious answer is Trey Sermon. But <laughs> uh, I 100% agree on both fronts. I think I, I personally would vote for Devonta Smith. I think he's the best player in college football, and I don't think it's particularly close. I think if this award is supposed to honor that, then it would obviously go to Devonta Smith. But I also think that Mac Jones is probably going to wind up winning it because Heisman voters aren't smart and they don't actually watch the games. They just look at box scores. And so they're going to give it to the quarterback because, like you said, it's become a quarterback award. But it is kind of crazy that like the top three candidates are pretty much all Bama's offense. It's just Devonta Smith, Mac Jones, and Najee Harris. And who knows, maybe that, maybe those three guys split the votes and Trevor Lawrence winds up coming from behind and winning it. Because, you know, if we're talking best players in college football, he's definitely top two, top three. So it wouldn't be a huge stretch for him to win the award, even though he missed one game. He still played more than Ohio State has, personally. But, you know, I I, I think Devontae Smith is clearly the best player. He's Bama's best player. He's incredible. He's unguardable. I think he's the top, the top wide receiver to come out of there since Amari Cooper, and they've had some really good guys come out of there. But, yeah, I, I personally would vote for Devontae Smith. He's unbelievable whenever they need offense they always look at him he's always there he's like he's like if you put Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave into one player he's like the perfect wide receiver and I think he he deserves it whether he wins it is another story I I will say he's been the best player in college football this season but I think that just on I I don't think he's the best player on their team I think I think Najee Harris like that not Najee Harris has receiver pass catching abilities in the body of a slightly smaller. I shouldn't say slightly, but he he basically looks like if Trent Richardson could see the holes and could also catch passes with the ability of one of Bama's wide receivers. That would be Najee Harris. No, yeah, Najee he's, Harris he's, is unreal. he's smaller. He's smaller. Derrick Henry with hands. <laughs> Exactly I, I hesitate is. to compare anyone to Derrick Henry after what he's been doing the last two or three years, but I, I I wanted to go there, so I do agree with that analogy to a certain extent. But man, he that that guy's going to be an unbelievable NFL running back just because right, well, of how we'll, multiple. We'll save uh, we'll save our Bama talk for when we're previewing Ohio State's national yeah, championship I'm, matchup. With I just Bama. realized I'm gassing up Bama on Ohio State podcast, and now I want to put myself in timeout. So I I apologize if your ears are burning. Go watch 85 yards through the heart of the South, and uh, that'll make you feel. Listen, better. if we gonna, if we wind up talking about Bama on this podcast again, it's a really really good sign for Ohio State. 
<laughs> you know what? That's that's a really nice way to put it. Um, so yeah, I think we should probably end on that then. So hopefully, uh, you know, we'll we'll be back in your ear uh, next week with a preview for the Clemson game. But yeah, hopefully after that, the next time uh, we get on the Hangout in the Holy Land pod, episode 15 will be all about Bama and what we can expect. Um, But until then, like we said, we'll be back next week to preview the college football playoff semifinal with Clemson. Uh, It's going to definitely be a highly anticipated game for both sides. Uh, Neither of these coaches seem like they have a whole lot of nice things to say about each, each other's teams. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited for it, at least, you know, from the emotional standpoint in terms of how the game plays out, uh, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but we'll, we'll break it down for you going into it next week. And, uh, we're, we're very much looking forward to that. So congratulations to the 2020, uh, Ohio state big 10 champions and, uh, for Gene Ross, I'm George Eisner. This has been hang out in the Holy land episode 13, and, uh, we will be back next week. So, uh, take care folks. Merry Christmas and uh, happy holidays to you and your families.